Well, I just wanted to tag one thing on to something that Lisa shared this morning about Moments of Hope. Just to give you an idea of the scope, uh, the scale for that, we passed out 500 lunches yesterday with doing that. So, yeah, I, yes, we can clap about that. We can celebrate that. That's good. That's good stuff. Um, two of my kids are on this trip with the youth group, and so I definitely appreciate your prayers uh, for that, that too. So I uh, love that crew. Glad that they're doing this. They are with 1,600 of their peers uh, this weekend, and, um, and, and I'm just really, really thankful that they get to have this experience. So grateful for that. Hey, we're going to jump right into the book of Zechariah. Uh, this is the 11th of 12 minor prophets, so we've only gotten one more to go, and we've only taken four at a time over the last three years, and so we're coming, coming to the end of a you know, three-year-long uh, series. But we're going to be looking at Zechariah, and if you want to know where that is, you're, you're going to want to open up your Bible to it. But if you go to Matthew, if you know where that is at the beginning of the New Testament, and then just go two books back, you'll be, you'll be right there in the right spot. Zechariah is fun, and you might, might wonder, man, these minor prophets, major lessons, what, what's going on? If, you, if your life has ever been chaotic, if it's ever been out of control, uh, we're like, oh, that's not relevant to anybody, right? If things have ever happened out of order for you, then the book of Zechariah is, is, is for you. And so we're going to be taking a look at it. Zechariah is actually pretty long for a minor prophet. It's 14 chapters long. However, you could probably sit down and read it in about 15 minutes. Now, 15 minutes to read it, but it would take you much longer and you would have to be much more deliberate to understand it because the book of Zechariah is full of apocalyptic language. So most of the time when we talk about apocalyptic literature, we're thinking of the book of Revelation. So if I say that and you think apocalyptic, we're thinking about all the crazy imagery and the symbols and the things that are happening there. But did you know John is not the only one who wrote apocalyptic literature. In fact, Zechariah is one of the early examples. We see examples in the second half of Daniel. We see examples in Joel. We see examples in, in, examples in Isaiah as well. And so one of the things that, that helps us do is it helps us to kind of remember what apocalyptic language is for and what it's meant to teach us and, and why, why it's used. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit as we talk about what it means to understand Zechariah and how we deal with chaos and how we handle things when life is out of control. One of the things I want to mention to you is that if, as you read through, hopefully you'll do that this week if you never have before, as you read through the book of Zechariah, you're going to see a lot of imagery, a lot of symbols that sound really familiar if you've ever read the book of Revelation. So let me just give you some, some, uh, some examples. In Zechariah, especially uh, in chapters 1 through 6, like that's where all the symbolic language and imagery is happening. If you read through Zechariah, you'll see a man who's walking among, uh, among the myrtles, and well, in the myrtle trees. In Revelation, you see a man who's walking along the lampstands, very similar imagery. There's horns in Zechariah, there's horns in, in Revelation. There's a measuring line that God is using in Zechariah, there's a measuring rod that God is using in, in Revelation. In Zechariah, we talk about the clean garments of the high priest. Uh, in Revelation, we talk, to, uh, talk about the multitude and clean right robes. Zechariah talks about scrolls. Revelation talks about scrolls. There's a woman in a basket in Zechariah. There's a woman in a, on a beast in, in Revelation. Uh, in Zechariah, there's four horses pulling chariots. In Revelation, there's four horses pulling chariots. And the reason that there's common imagery and common things going on in Zechariah and Revelation and other apocalyptic literature is because there's a consistent message that's being taught through this. A lot of times the mistake that people make when they talk about eschatology in times, when they talk about things that are happening in apocalyptic literature, the idea is, oh, we need to figure out how to shoehorn this text into our personal present day. 
And that's really not what it's meant to do. There's something else that apocalyptic literature is, is helping us understand about God. It's not about us trying to figure out the future and how things go down. Um, there's, there's a lot of bad theology that's hung up on the minutia of those th- things. It misses the point. God isn't giving us a blueprint for the future as much as he is allowing us a glimpse of what it looks like to know everything, to be in control, and try to explain that in ways that our non-omniscient brains can try to process them. And ultimately, here's the point. Of all the chaotic, crazy imagery and all of those things that are happening in Scripture when we read that, the point is to provide hope within the context of the lives of the people each author is proclaiming and recording the message to. It's like, all right, well, if that's the case, why bother? Like, why, why do we bother reading Revelation? Why do we bother reading Zechariah? What, what about us? Well, it's because they're instructive for how we think about and practically live within the way God deals with the cycle of humanity. So Zechariah, as you read through it, you start off with the knowledge within the first verse that his ministry is happening at the exact same time as Haggai, which we talked about last week. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time rehashing some of that historical context that Haggai and Ezra, the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, deal with that we shared last week. Uh, But you just know that the remnant of Israelites have come back from Babylon, they're in Jerusalem, and they're supposed to be rebuilding the temple, okay? They've been given that responsibility to re-engage with the covenant relationship that God established long ago. And and the re-engaging with the covenant relationship that God calls them into, calls all of us into, is faithful participation with God that gives us hope in the middle of chaos. That's, That's where that comes from. When humans get together in large groups and build identities on shifting power struggles, things get pretty chaotic pretty fast. That's why all of us have experienced chaos, and we can observe it in the, in the world. And it makes life difficult, to say the least. You and I both know what it looks like to feel that on a personal level, as, as we got some chuckles a little bit earlier on. And we know what it looks like to, uh, to be on a large social scale as well. Uh, seemingly out of nowhere, you can get bad news one weekend, and for the rest of the week, you spend up, you know, you have sleepless nights, you have multiple conversations, you're trying to figure out what your next steps are going to be and how you're going to handle things wisely and deal with those things. Uh, that was Renee and I's last week. I mean, just out of nowhere, you know, stuff comes up and you're like, all right, well, we got to deal with this and this isn't planned. This is not what we had uh, planned to do. Or you just look at the current news cycle. You know, $400,000 missiles shooting, you know, balloons down and, uh, you know, crazy things, devastating earthquakes happening in other countries, disastrous train derailments, ongoing international war and fear-mongering, cost of living increased, the hits, you know, keep coming. And you can almost, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I can almost feel the tension kind of building in my neck, the frustration coming. Um, but God's trying to build something up, something else up through his people. And he knows that life has been chaotic for them, and things don't seem like they are on track. But he's trying to work up to build up hope in and through his people what, by what he has called them to do. So, if we're reading apocalyptic literature and writings from Scripture and coming away with freaking out over current events, we can safely assume that we've missed the point of the text. And anybody that would preach that or teach that, we know we can kind of steer clear from them. Where Haggai, for example, is sharing his message over the course of months to encourage the Israelites to rebuild their covenant with life with God. Zechariah is sharing a message of hope, explaining why things had gotten crazy and chaotic and what God is up to in the midst of all that and what part we're meant to play. All right, so with that in mind, let's jump into the text from Zechariah chapter, chapter 1. 
And here's Zechariah starts off just like Haggai. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. And so we know from last week, the people respond to this message. They repent, they turn, they start rebuilding the temple, despite knowing that the physical structure wouldn't be what it once was. God promised that he would do even greater things through this temple than the glory of Solomon's temple that was much more fancy to begin with. And then we skip down to Zechariah chapter 1, verse 16. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. One of the things I think we, we know just intrinsically because we experience this in, in, in our life that as we read this, we understand this is a process that the nation of Israel is going to have to go through. That this isn't something that happens immediately over time. It's like, oh, you moved back. Great. Everything's perfect now and prosperity is happening all over the place. It's going to take time. Just like anything we or someone else has made a mess out of and creative chaos out of, it takes time to evaluate, to unravel, to walk back, to transform, to renew, to reconcile. But just because it takes time doesn't mean that that time spent isn't bearing fruit. And so what God is sharing with his people through Zechariah throughout the whole of this message is that building up sustainable hope happens through faithful consistency. That what God is about to do is greater than anything that they've ever experienced before, but it's going to happen over time, and it's going to take them being faithful in the midst of that. It's a deliberate process, but it doesn't have to be a slow one. The limitation really is just our perspective and whether or not we can accept the wisdom that when our repentance turns us to move in the way God has called us to, the results that we are working toward become visible externally when they are established internally. And that internal work that maybe we can't see the result of is already bearing fruit and that we are building something that will last and God will sustain when we keep at it. Let me, let me give you an example of what, what I mean when I say this. And this example will always be stuck in my head. About 15, I don't know, 16, 17 years ago, I don't remember the exact year, um, when I was doing some pastoral counseling, this is years ago at a, at a different church, I had a conversation with a guy who was very frustrated with God. Because he had spent the last two weeks praying about a situation in his life. And he was just ready for it to be different. He was ready for it to be transformed and renewed and, and changed and all, all that kind of stuff. As we kept talking, you know, I figured, found out more details about what the situation is that he was going through. I found that um, this situation had built up over the course of a decade of his life. So after two weeks of, of praying, he was looking for everything to be changed and everything to be different and all the results of those things to, to be taken away. And God, where are you? Why haven't you done anything about this? And so I remember just kind of thinking in, in my head, is, is that is that really the expectation that we have? Is that I put myself, dug myself into a 10-year hole, but God, you better get me out of it in two weeks. If not, man, I'll, I'm out. You know, you're, you're not, come on, what, what's, what's up with that? Um, I, you know, as, as we look through the examples that we have in, in, in the text, especially the Israelite nation, and think about the fact that 
man, they've been, they've been gone from home for over 70 years because of all the decision-making that they, they, had, they had participated in. And God brings them back home, and he says, hey, right now, you just start, start living faithfully right now, and I'm going to do something better than you've ever experienced before. And, and maybe, there's, maybe there's something to that. Not, not just because God says it, and maybe we should trust that, but maybe there's something to that when we, when we start living faithfully in those moments that there, there's something that starts to happen internally in us that, that changes our perspective on how we view some of those things that maybe we've dug ourselves into or somebody else has dug ourselves into. It's not necessarily us that puts us, uh, us in, that, in that situation. And there's something about living faithfully and consistently that builds up a sustaining hope in us that otherwise we might not experience if we're just kind of sitting back and waiting for God to do something that we aren't willing to do and participate in. The post-exile remnant of the Israelites in Jerusalem had generational baggage they were having to work through, but that's exactly what they needed to do. They needed to work through those things. Not because God was leaving them alone to try to work it out on their own. He's, hey, good luck you know, with this. Try to, try to make it. But because they had become so used to not being where God was and what God was up to that they needed to go through the process of learning what it is to be shown mercy and to be blessed and to recognize what prosperity actually looks like. Because they'd spent so much time outside of that that they had a hard time recognizing what God was up to and doing. When we get to chapters 7 and 8 in Zechariah, we're given two places where God gives really practical examples of what it looks like to be consistently faithful. In Zechariah chapter 7, God says, This is what the Lord Almighty said, Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. In Zechariah chapter 8 verse 16, These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. And render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all of this, declares the Lord. And so absolutely be praying for two weeks. For sure, absolutely be praying for two weeks about those ten years. Do that. Read scripture as you're doing that, absolutely. But don't forget to put it into practice. And this is what faithful consistency that builds up hope looks like in the midst of chaos. Remember that two weeks isn't necessarily going to unravel 10 years on the spot, but being deliberate about renewing our minds will certainly place those 10 years in proper perspective and not allow them to rule our lives. Because with God, the past is not what dictates the future. Keep in mind, that too, that God is not asking the Israelites to add more to their lives with these practical, practical examples that he gives of what it looks like to live a repentant, godly life. Instead, God is saying that these things need to replace something that you've removed. It's not only just a reprioritization that builds up hope, but it's also about supplanting the broken things of this world with the goodness of God. Um, so one of the things, one of the habits that I've built in uh, over the last several months is just my first drive of the day. First drive of the day, I just listen to, to Scripture. That's it. That's just one, one little habit that I, that I introduced in, into my life, which means that during that time, I'm not listening to a book or I'm not listening to a podcast. It's something that, that we're replacing, supplanting with something that's, that, that maybe is a little bit better. It's just one small example of how that works and what God is calling his people to do. The more we try to shove into our life, it's like, okay, well, now I need to add this other thing that God called me to do, and I need to add this thing. The more we try to shove in, the more it's going to pop out. 
Um, or as someone else once put it, the more you tighten your grip, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. I mean, there's, it, it just doesn't quite work that way. And so God is communicating to the Israelites that they had become so used to this other way of living when they weren't with him, when they weren't home, that now they need to let go of the old life that they'd been accustomed to. And the life to come is not only more hopeful in the future, but it produces more goodness today than any other way of living. They've tried it all at this point, and it hasn't worked out. But he hasn't give up, given up, and nor will he. Hope remains steadfast with God. He gives them a picture of what this looks like in Zechariah chapter 3. This starts in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. And we're going to skip down to uh, verse 8. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, talking about a cornerstone. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. So Joshua was given as a symbolic picture for the nation, nation of Israel, but he's just as easily can be symbolic for each and every one of us. And when we come to God, we bring the out-of-control, pervasive sin in our life that creates chaos that the accuser would love nothing more to convince us that we can't do anything about. But God takes away that sin and exchanges it for new life through Jesus the cornerstone on which the kingdom of God is built, who takes away the sin of the world. Paul puts this a lot more succinctly in Galatians chapter 3. He says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And so we have been invited to throw off the old dirty clothes we've worn along the way and put on brand new ones that will never fade. I mean, you think about just a brand new pair of socks. And how amazing, just a brand new pair of socks, the first day that you wear it, how incredible that is. Um, there are few things better than that. This, it doesn't even hold a candle to this, obviously. Dumb example. I like new socks. When life gets chaotic and out of control, sometimes it's because of our own fault and sin. Sometimes it's because of others. Sometimes it's the environment we find ourselves in, in a mass of humanity that looks for life outside of God. The mercy and prosperity that God is leading us toward, talks about in Zechariah chapter 1 that we read earlier, comes about when we humble ourselves before him and choose a new way of living, which is the old way that he's called us to from the beginning. In Zechariah chapter 9, he writes, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. God has a pattern that's repeated throughout Scripture for how he establishes his kingdom. It's not with military power. It's not by wielding political might. Uh, just as he reestablishes the remnant of Israel through establishing peace, this is the way that Jesus has come. 
In fact, we're coming up here in several weeks as we move toward Easter. We're coming up to Palm Sunday, which this text is often read because it's a picture of how Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It's not the way that the world works. Jesus comes as a conquering king into Jerusalem that will change the world, that ushers in the kingdom of God, not with an army behind him, but humbly riding on a donkey to be killed and to raise again, to be the sacrifice for us to experience new life. There's, there's a different way of living that God has called us to that builds up sustainable hope in our lives. And if we don't participate in it, then yeah, that's, that's how we get caught up in the chaos. That's how we get stuck in the out of control. It's because he's called us to a whole different conception of how we think about life and how we participate in the practical things that God calls us to do. Jesus has come and Jesus is coming again. In Zechariah chapter 14, this is the very last chapter of the book. I mean, this is, this is what everything is moving toward and how God is moving and establishing his kingdom. And he says in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 6, On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. If you look through the structure of the visions and dreams that Zechariah has in chapters 1 through 6, um, they're almost like bookending each other as, as they're coming closer and closer to, to the middle. Um, there's, a, there's a word for this in Scripture. It's called chiasm. Um, and it's a particular structure that's helping you kind of narrow down what the really um, a specific point that's being made, the focus that, that the text is, is making on this. And, and kind of as you get to, to the middle, um, the two chapters together there in the middle, it's talking about the new Jerusalem that is to come, the new kingdom that God is, is coming to establish. Not only has, he, has, has that begun, but, it, but it's coming as well. It's the um, here and, and coming aspect of the kingdom of God that Jesus preaches and teaches as, that we read throughout the New, New Testament. This is how God has, has always uh, operated. And there's coming a time in which, man, all the, all the chaos, all the brokenness, out of, the, all the, out of control, out of the disorder, that's all, all going to be done away with. And God's going to bring the culmination of our hope that, that we participate in all together in, in, in one day, where we get to be in the new Jerusalem. Most of the time we, we talk about heaven as going somewhere else, but he's, he's establishing that here on earth, and, and he's already begun. And he simply calls us to participate in that hope right now by the practical ways in which he's called us to live and think about the world and interact with it with, with each other. And so may we humble ourselves in repentance like the nation of Israel is being taught to do here, living the narrow, humble way of Jesus, full of hope for the new life he's brought and is bringing. Jesus coming again is something that we look for, not, not, not out of fear, but out of expectant hope and joy. Humbling ourselves to the way of God provides hope for today and for the future in our lives. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that we're kind of coming up to Easter here in, in the next several weeks. On the church liturgical calendar, which is not something that we necessarily follow a ton uh, as far as, uh, as, as part of our church, but absolutely during Advent and Easter, that's, that's something that we, we tend to participate in. 
And this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And some of you have had church experience and backgrounds of what that means and how, you know, you're only going to eat fish on Fridays or, you know, those kinds of things. And, and um, the thing I, I just want to invite you into during that time is a lot of times people will choose something to fast from during that time. It's 40 days, um, not counting the Sundays leading, leading up to Easter. And I just want to encourage you to find some way to participate in that, whatever that looks like for you. We've got some ideas for you at velocitychurch.info. We've got a whole reading plan that you can participate in, a daily reading plan for that. We've got some ideas of what, uh, what kind of fasting you could participate and, and be in. And when things are chaotic and out of control, we need to slow down <clears throat> and really deal with our perspective and what, what's happening spiritually in our hearts and our lives. And so participating in this kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, participating in this kind of thing in Lent or 40 days of prayer and fasting, however you want to, however you want to call it or, or think, of, think about it in your life, helps us to reorient our lives around the hope that God is providing through his kingdom. It helps us to slow down and to reconsider all the things that we spend our time doing, the way that we fill up our schedules, the things that we think that we desperately need to have in our lives. And maybe they're not nearly as important as the way God calls us to live and the hope and the goodness that we experience through that. And so I want to encourage you to look at that. VelocityChurch.info, you can go on there and, uh, and look for, for those, kind of, uh, those kind of ideas. I want to encourage you to share with us the things that you're going to commit to, to, to giving up during this time, to reorient your life and your perspective around the hope that Jesus is bringing and has brought. There's a new Jerusalem coming, a time when God will firmly establish his reign and rule through the coming of the Messiah. The day of the Lord is coming, and we're invited to hold on to hope and remain faithful as we celebrate that today and look forward to it in the future. Let's pray. God, we, just, uh, we ask that you give us a brand new perspective on life, a perspective of hope in the midst of um, things being crazy. God, we ask that you guide us through your Holy Spirit, especially as disciples. If we're, if we're disciples of Jesus, if we are, are fully committed to, to following you, that um, we are renewed by the practical ways in which you've called us to live and to firmly build up that hope on the cornerstone of Jesus in our lives. God, we praise you for uh, not leaving us in the midst of our junk but the fact that you take our filthy, old, dirty rags and you exchange them for, for brand new ones, that you clothe us, clothe us with Christ through your grace and mercy. God, help us to live faithfully consistent, live, to live that out, and to be a partner with you in what you're doing through your kingdom here on this earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.